Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, if you look around, it's amazing how our lives have been changed by composite materials. And we don't think about it very often, but if you look at the synthetic materials that make up everything from our car parts to your headphones to spaceships, this stuff is everywhere. And synthetic chemistry can concoct these polymers by reacting different smaller monomers together to form larger, more elaborate structures, sometimes with really strong uh, uh, properties and uh, such as durability. And, and all is done probably at a pretty low cost. Now, biological systems also make polymers. And is it possible that with a few little tweaks that they could be genetically reprogrammed to build new structures using biotechnology? And could you use them as modern factories powered by sugar or sun to make the building blocks of modern polymeric molecules? It would truly represent the next generation of material science innovations. So can we make future complex polymers from microorganisms harvested from fermenters rather than from petroleum harvested from the planet? Today's guest thinks so. So today's guest is Dr. Scott Franklin. He's the co-founder and chief science officer of CheckerSpot. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Hey, thanks, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, well, I'm really happy to have you on. I think it's a great opportunity to talk about this because we haven't covered this topic too much in the podcast series. And I think it's a great opportunity. So let's start at the beginning. The company that you founded is working on the development of specialized compounds from biological systems, so microalgae. So what are some of the real advantages to using microalgae as a fundamental basis to develop these exciting new chemistries? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the value in microalgae as a, as a production platform for these types of molecules is they're single-celled organisms. Um, so they're microbes, essentially. But they, they make a lot of materials, a lot of monomers um, that are very similar to those made by, and in fact, in many cases, the same as those made by higher plants. So when you think about many of the things, raw materials that we derive from higher plants, um, you know, trees or crops take months or years to mature and uh, so that we can harvest those materials. Uh, our microalgal systems uh, typically operate on the scale of days um, because they're a single-celled organism. And we've developed a lot of tools to manipulate them and change and alter the outputs of the types of materials that they make. So you can think of them as um, a plant-like platform, but on a, they operate on a different time scale, a much more rapid time scale. Okay, so I see the big advantages, but when we talk about microalgae, what exactly are they? And you know, you've explained a little bit about why they're useful hosts, but 
are they specifically amenable to engineering or maybe have different capacities for different metabolic pathways that really make them useful for this kind of application? Yeah. So if you, so a couple of points there, um, when we talk about microalgae, that's really a generic term. And all it means is an alga that's single celled. So we're not talking about things like seaweed and kelp. We're talking about single celled organisms. And usually when you think algae, you think sunlight. We don't use sunlight. There are many, many species of microalgae that actually grow under what we call heterotrophic conditions with a reduced carbon source, usually sugar. So dextrose from corn or sucrose from sugarcane. And we grow these in fermentation vessels very, very much like we would grow yeast or E. coli. The the attributes they have, and particularly in our case, is that the strains we work with are very prolific oil producers, triglyceride oil producers. So in that respect, you can think of the starting raw material they make uh, very akin to uh, petroleum, uh, akin to a barrel of oil. And part of what we're doing at Checker Spot is exploring all the different ways we can engineer the microalgae to tailor the types of triglyceride oils they make and also apply new chemistries to those triglyceride oils to get to new and novel high-performance polymers. Okay, so here's the softball question of the day. Okay, really easy. You're using microalgae to generate specialized triglyceride molecules, different triglycerides. But what's wrong with the old way of doing this and deriving the basis for these products from petroleum or other types of synthetic chemical? So, I mean, the challenge, as we all know, to using petroleum-based feedstocks, there's, you know, really an existential crisis that the planet is facing when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, global warming, and these materials derived from petroleum. So, I think we're definitely seeing the world move away to alternative energy sources to replace things like coal as a fuel and a feedstock, and certainly petroleum as a feedstock. And certainly we're seeing an electrification of human transportation in the auto industry. But the global warming impacts of petroleum and petroleum products extend far beyond that into chemicals. So even if we replace all the fuel that goes to automobile transport, transport in general, to heating and cooling that we currently use petroleum-derived products for, we have to think about replacing all of these other materials, chemicals that are derived, you know, by and large from petroleum-based feedstocks. So microalgae and particularly sort of... um, Uh, high-density fermentation systems like this offer a path to get to truly renewable, much less carbon-intensive ways of making those chemical monomers that we currently use today, as well as entirely new materials that, that we don't even have at our disposal today. Yeah, well, there's a sort of ironic algae justice here because many of our fossil fuels are really just the remains of microalgae. That's absolutely right. And that's, that's one of the reasons why these microalgae are such useful organisms for the elaboration of triglyceride oils. Evolutionarily, they're just inherently very, very good at it. So 
Another comparison that we can make is when we compare triglyceride oils made in a system like microalgae in a fermentation-based process with traditional oil seeds. So those processes are also relatively carbon intensive due to the fertilizer requirements, for example, and land use change, changes that we get with cultivating certain crops like soybean um, or fertilizer impacts of growing, um, say, corn dextrose or soybeans. Microalgae with a sort of an, a preferred carbon source of sucrose derived from sugarcane is a very, very efficient process that operates, again, on a really different timescale. So if you think about a farmer who's growing, say, sunflowers or sunflower seed oil, um, you know, from the time he sows his seed to the time he harvests, uh, harvests might be, you know, 90 days, for example. And he'll generate, say, several metric tons of, of oil from that seed harvest per hectare. The process that we use at industrial scale um, in about a six-day process would generate about 90 metric tons of oil at an industrial-sized uh, fermentation uh, vessel. That's about 620 cubic meters. <clears throat> And while it's true that you utilize sucrose to run that fermentation as a feedstock, the land use efficiency of that process is much, much more favorable when we're growing sugar and using sun, sunlight to carry out that photosynthetic reaction and then converting that into sort of a high value triglyceride oil. So we actually generate more oil per hectare using a fermentation-based process than we would by growing a crop. So even from a land use perspective, it's a much more efficient process. And then the final point I would say is we, we divorce the type of oil we make from a particular geography. So <clears throat> what we need is sugar. And so typically you would co-locate these facilities, or we have, co-locate these facilities with a source of sugar. And that could be sugar cane in Brazil. It could be sugar beets in North America or Europe, or it could be corn dextrose in the Midwest. And with that process, we can make an oil that we might only find available, uh, say, um, grown in the tropics, something like uh, cocoa butter or um, coconut oil. We have the capability of making these types of oils in our microalgae, but completely divorced from those geographies. Yeah, but what about being completely divorced from those genetics? I mean, you already have plants that can synthesize these higher order molecules because of some, some inherent metabolic steps. So are microalgae amenable to genetic engineering? And can you essentially make it able to uh, mimic what these higher order plants are able to do and make the structures you want? Absolutely. And that's why, that's why these microalgae are such a facile platform, such a useful platform for doing this. Because evolutionarily, these microalgae are actually, and these microalgae and their biochemical processes for making triglyceride oils are actually the progenitors of those processes in higher land plants, in oil seeds. So they make, they actually spawned these biochemical reactions that higher land plants took on board hundreds of millions of years ago, 
microalgae have been utilizing these processes for, you know, you know, billions of years to make these compounds and gave rise to higher land plants. So what we can do is we can actually borrow genetic information, and this is a large part of what we do, genetic information from higher plant oil seeds, and we can mobilize those genetic elements in our microalgal system to elaborate new oils that might be made in something like a coconut tree or a palm kernel oil or even a soybean. But even more important and more interesting is we can combine those pieces of genetic information combinatorially. So we can make an oil that, you know, for want of a better way to think about it, is a cross between uh, palm kernel oil and high oleic sunflower oil because we can get a certain physical property out of an oil like that. So it's really being able to combine all these elements together to create, in essence, what are new material feedstocks. But can we drill down on that a little bit more? Because, uh, you know, photosynthesis versus fermentation. I think about it as a plant biologist. I think of how the plants are factories. The sun is free. Carbon dioxide is free. Your energy and your raw materials are there to be made into more elaborate structures. So how do the two compare photosynthesis against fermentation? Yeah, so if we're comparing microalgae and thinking about, well, wouldn't it be more efficient to grow microalgae using sunlight? That's one aspect of your question. So let's address that first. And the answer is, Yes, sunlight is free, but sunlight is the driving energy force in photosynthesis. Everything an organism needs to do is going to be driven by its access to sunlight. And the challenge that you have when you start to cultivate microalgae photosynthetically, and I spent a lot of time in my career doing that, um, is light limitation. As soon as that culture starts to get um, somewhat dense, and by our fermentation standards, um, that's a very, very low density, um, the culture becomes light limited. So all the metabolism begins to slow down, which means oil accumulation slows down, nutrient uptake slows down. So the productivity of that culture on a volumetric basis, grams of oil per liter per day, becomes very, very low. When we compare that with uh, a fermentation-based process using, and it can be the same microalgal species, we might be one or two log orders higher in dry cell weight accumulation on a per-day basis. So I'll give you a comparison to a facility I used to work at in Hawaii uh, that's still in existence today, an outfit called Cyanotech. They make photosynthetically uh, grown microalgal products, spirulina, uh, hematococcus for astaxanthin production. That's about a 90-acre facility. And uh, when I was there in the mid-90s, we could produce maybe 350 metric tons of spirulina biomass per year. Well, um, a high-cell density fermentation of the microalgal strains that we use in a single fermentation run at 620 cubic meters, that'll produce on the order of about 120 to 130 metric tons of biomass in six days. So the productivity of these systems 
are just, again, their log order is different. And that, that gets you to the economics where you can start to get into producing potential replacements for petroleum-derived materials. So that's, you know, that's comparing microalgae to microalgae grown in fermentation versus photosynthetically. And then the other question relates to, well, why not do this in uh, a land plant? And that stems back to those issues of land use efficiency. And most of the oils that we want to make that are truly novel, there are no currently cultivated uh, agronomically important crops that elaborate those types of oil. And chances are there never will be because the economics won't be there to do it in that way. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way. And, and it's really interesting because I think we're getting to the point, and, and I'm just taking a guess, that we'll probably be getting to the point where the economics of this are increasingly more attractive with petroleum costs going high and this sensitivity towards global climate change. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Scott Franklin, who's the co-founder and chief science officer at Checkerspot. This is Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we're speaking with Dr. Scott Franklin. Uh, Dr. Franklin is co-founder and CSO of Checkerspot. And uh, where is Checkerspot located? So, Kevin, our, our headquarters are in Alameda, California, but we also have uh, manufacturing facilities for our brand, Wonder Alpine, which is an outdoor brand, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah, Salt Lake City, a really good place for an outdoor brand. Absolutely. So we talked earlier about the advantages of microalgae. We didn't get much into the engineering of them, that kind of thing. But are they particularly useful or amenable to genetic engineering? And could you say insert a plant gene that gives them or confers some sort of new metabolic activity or new potential to make a new molecule? Oh, absolutely. We do that all the time. Our principal focus is around engineering uh, fatty acid and triacylglycerol biosynthesis. But it, they're very facile. They're very easy organisms to work with. They're, at a molecular genetic level, they're very similar to working with yeast. Um, at least our, our platform organism is. Not all microalgae work the same way uh, in terms of how genetic material gets inserted. Our, our platform utilizes homologous recombination. So just innately, naturally, uh, it's a highly recombinogenic host. So, um, and what that means is we can target uh, endogenous genes for disruption, for downregulation, upregulation, but we can also very precisely target where we insert genes to explore particular loci and the impact on gene expression, for example. That's a lot more difficult in a higher plant system or in some other microalgal systems where 
genetic insertion events are random. So you really don't control that and you get a lot of position effects in terms of gene expression. Um, so yeah, it's a very, very uh, utilitarian system. Well, that's really neat. I got a good education today because I never knew that you could do that with algae. And, and it's nice yeah. because it seems a lot like a direct parallel to what we can do in yeast. Yes, that's right. And when we were first developing, when I was at a company called Solozyme, and we developed this platform, we were operating in our early days under the assumption that it was going to be like every other microalgae I knew, and that it was not going to utilize homologous recombination. And it actually took us a while <laughs> took us a while to figure out that uh, we could do homologous recombination. And once we, once we figured out that, the development really, really took off. Well, I'd like to turn the attention to today's hot topic of fuel. And we know that there's been plants that have yep. been genetically engineered to uh, develop, say, high-performance jet fuels, things like that, plants like camelina. But I'm guessing the same approach could be done in microalgae only more efficiently. And is there a price point where you would say a barrel of oil or a gallon of gas would really drive the production and switch to a microalgae-derived fuel versus those that are coming from, say, fossil fuel sources and being pumped out of the earth? You know, I, I don't think you're going to get to the point where the economics are going to make a one-for-one drop-in economical. The question is how much of, and there's several questions, but one of those is how much of the transportation fuel, you know, market starts to go away because of electrification of transportation generally. I mean, I think in the near term, you're still going to need rail. You're still going to need shipping. Um, where I think um, things like microalgae and plant-derived fuels, and I'm, I'm focused mainly on things like biodiesel, because I think that's a really good fit. Um, uh, sorry, bio and renewable diesel. I think those are really good fits for triglyceride oils. You're probably looking at a blend strategy. So being able to tailor the triglyceride oil output to fit really, really well with the specifications you need to make a particular renewable diesel or a jet fuel is I is where I really think you can you can find applications for these as fuels. But I think in the near term, you know, the next ten to fifteen years, it's going to be as blends to sort of improve the emissions spectra, if you will, of current liquid-based fuels. And fuels are great, but when I look at the website, the Checker Spot website, I see you're developing a lot of different polymers. Yeah. And can you give us a sense of the kind of interesting polymers you can develop and some of the applications for them? Yeah, so the polymer story for Checker Spot, that goes back to our brand. So when Charlie and I started the company and we were thinking about platform organism, what we would make, we decided to go down a path um, initially rather than focus on food or personal care or fuel. Uh, we really wanted to focus on materials, and we knew it was critical that we be able to animate whatever we were doing in the material space through a brand. And in order to do that, you have to have a consumer base in that brand that is going to care very deeply and very passionately about what it is you're making and how you're making it. So 
you know, through some exploration in the very early days of the company, we settled on that vertical, that market being outdoor recreation, because we took a road trip to the outdoor recreation uh, um, uh, annual convention in Salt Lake City in 2016. And those people were really, really captivated by what we were proposing to do. And we didn't have any samples. We didn't have any material. We basically had a concept, but we were kind of getting feedback of if that was something that they thought was worthwhile. Um, and it really validated our conviction that we needed to focus on building a brand in this space and then developing the materials to service initially that brand. And that, that, led to the development, the, the genesis of Wonder Alpine. And so we did that in, uh, we brought that to market in 2019 with the general manager, Matt Sturbins, who had a deep background in backcountry skiing. So the first materials that we've begun developing are for applications in outdoor and specifically in backcountry skiing. And what that has led to and this was our, our, our desire and our hope, is a whole suite of applications development for materials that can fit into those end-use applications. So a very demanding, uh, high-performance materials that one would use in backcountry skis. And now in 2022, the launch of split boards and snowboards. So <clears throat> conceptually for us, it wasn't enough and it will never be enough to simply develop a material and then try and get others to adopt it. There's an ethos within the company that we need to animate these technologies through brand. And that brand and the applications serve as a focusing mechanism so that we can begin to understand how do we utilize these materials? How do we make them better? And very importantly, how do we formulate them to deliver the performance properties that we need in an, in an end use application. You see, this is what I really love about this is that you're demonstrating that consumers would be interested in maybe paying a premium for something that was coming through this more renewable and sustainable process and, and this more sustainable platform. And I'm always hesitant to make this podcast sound something that could be misunderstood uh, as an infomercial or something like that. <laughs> but, but I, and I don't want it to sound like that, but, but at this point, I think it's a great idea because your technology has an endpoint of the process that's something the consumer finds useful. And whether you're using an alternative strategy to get there or biotechnology process to get there, the consumer is excited about the end product. And, and that's really cool. It's just another way of showing that biotechnology has great applications to make something the consumer finds good, that's good for an economy, good for business, ultimately good for the planet. And that's really good because you're doing all of this uh, manufacturing in a fermenter rather than pulling oil out of the earth. That's right. And, and there's, there's an, um, well, I think for us, there was also an anticipated and now validated knock-on effect of that strategy. Because it wouldn't be enough just to, you know, take a lot of investors' money and build a really cool outdoor brand. Understand me, there's huge value in that for Checker Spot. But the real value has come with that applications development and not only the connection with the end use consumer of the Wonder product, it's the brand adjacencies 
other brands in the winter sport arena, we call these close adjacencies, that look at Wonder Alpine, look at the materials, and are now buying those formulated materials. And so the strategy is that through expanding these concentric circles of what we call adjacencies, we get out into a wider and wider user base of these materials. And as we continue to do applications development for these wider and wider applications, we create more value within the organization and more value for our materials. But that whole process is exactly what the petroleum industry did. It's right out of their playbook. It is identical to how they developed the chemicals industry that grew out of what are we going to do with the rest of this stuff in a barrel of oil? They had to go and develop all those chemistries and importantly, end use applications for those materials. That's exactly what we're doing. And it's a great game plan. Yeah, I love it. Put me down for an algae kayak and a bike helmet when you get there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's right. And the only way, the only way you do that is you have to do that applications development work. Because if you're just making the monomer, you're, you're seeding all of that activity to somebody else. And they're on a different timeline. They're on a different time scale. They have a different agenda and they got a lot of stuff to do. And in our past lives, we found that the ball just doesn't move quickly enough when you're a startup, if you don't take that on board and start to develop applications. Yeah. So if I had a kayak that was made from microalgae derived polymers and I were to use it in the ocean, would there be a risk of making the microalgae resident in the ocean feel like underachievers? (laughs) There's a possibility if they knew where that came from. (laughs) It just kind of imagine, you know, look what you guys could have done. You know, I guess it really leads us to the future. You know, how far can this technology go? Um, what can be done in microalgae that's maybe outside of traditional polymer synthesis space? Well, I mean, anything that we currently think about making or that we derive from a plant system as a first start um, are things we can imagine making in microalgae. So those could be a variety of small molecules. The other thing to appreciate, appreciate about microalgae, the organism itself, think about it. It's a great delivery system. Uh, When we process microalgae coming out of the fermenter, it's a very simple process. We dry it. You can spray dry it or drum dry it. When you think about what you can package inside that little cell, um, just like an oil seed, think of all the possibilities of novel materials, maybe drugs, maybe probiotics, maybe uh, fertilizers, maybe insecticides, bio-based insecticides that you can incorporate in that little package. And now you've got this great delivery vehicle for a variety of end-use applications from you know, personal care to agriculture to food. So it's just really, really a great facile platform for doing a lot. But I will say at CheckerSpot, we are very, very focused right now on a, a suite of outputs from our microalgae and really proving that out and really building a balance sheet around that. And that also takes a lesson from the petroleum industry um, because the, one of the biggest challenges that industrial biotech companies have is you've got to build scale and you've got to build capacity. And that requires 
a certain degree of focus on the front end of the types of molecules, and it doesn't need to be many, it should be very few, that you need to build those processes around so you can achieve scale um, and economics. Because once we can do that, we've kind of got a hardware-software model. Our microalgal strain is the hardware. We can plug a lot of different pieces of software in there to get to different applications and end uses, depending on the software we plug in there. So right now, we're really focused on a limited set of triglyceride oils, both internally and with key partners, to get to the economics we need to to make this to make this a viable industry. Well, when you're talking about the economics and you're talking about the software and the hardware, what happens if you peel yeah. away and purify all the other needed molecules, the stuff, the triglycerides you set out to make from all the other stuff? Is there value in what's left over for, say, animal feed or some other kind of application? Or is there really a zero waste situation? Absolutely. Because again, that's taking another lesson from the petroleum industry. So the petroleum industry has figured out how to utilize every single scrap molecule in a barrel of oil. And the, you know, um, you know, the bio industry um, needs to do the same thing. So figuring out what the end use applications are for what we call spent press cake or bio, you know, uh, delipidated biomass is definitely something. So it definitely has applications in animal feed. I think that's probably a relatively low value application. Um, I think there's a lot of applications around whole biomass where we deliver a lot of the benefits and properties of the oil, but we use the whole cell. So I think there's a lot of intrinsic value there as well. Yeah, energy bars for skiers. I mean, you can give them a helmet and buy them lunch. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, but this isn't the first company that's tried such things. I think there's been others that have tried to do this kind of work. And you've been at it for a while, but what are some of the biggest criticisms? And how have you managed to work around those and achieve the performance levels necessary to make this a really viable concept? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great question. I mean, that's always the challenge when you're talking to like a Dow or a DuPont or whomever and you're a startup and you've got, a, you know, the next bio-based material. Um, I think the go-to answer from those companies is bio means lower performance. And I think the key there we alluded to earlier, it's doing the applications development. So, again, through the brand in a very demanding consumer space. And I will say, <laughs> not just the consumer space, the the team at Wonder Alpine, so Matt Sturbans, Pep Fuyas, um, you know, Alex Andrews, that team are all professional, highly professional, incredibly talented backcountry skiers and snowboarders. And when you get your materials into the hands of those guys, it's not giving it to somebody who's all going to go and do a couple of runs at the resort. They will, pardon the language, beat the crap out of the product. And so when you can pass muster with those guys, you kind of have their buy-in that we've met or exceeded their expectations. And to take it one step further, 
when we've seen these winter sport adjacencies come in, they all have different criteria for the performance of those materials. And to be able to see our materials meet those specifications, to me, there's no more argument about biobase equals lower performance. To me, that, that argument's gone. It's done. We can absolutely make materials that meet or exceed the current incumbents. Yeah, and that's what's so exciting to me as someone who thinks about strategic communication and strategic plans as a company. You've managed to engage a specific market segment who shares the values of sustainability with the company. So you're not just making a product and and throwing it out there, uh, you know, with some sort of underlying set of values. You've identified the market that you'll fulfill, uh, identified the values they ascribe to, and then use a technique that they would really buy into. So they're not just buying the product for the product, they're buying it because of how it was made. And that's really, really a great strategy. And it taught me a lot today. So thank you very, very much for joining me today, Scott. I really appreciate it. Oh, great. It was a, ple- it was a pleasure talking to you and uh, your audience. Yeah, and to that audience, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, as always. Uh, check out Collabra's suite of products, said laboratory products that add to the efficiency. It makes the experience a little more fun to have everybody working together in one shared space. So also write reviews over on iTunes or any place where you consume podcast media. Tell a friend. Uh, We continue to grow with more downloads every single week now in our eighth year. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.